culture, society. On every street and around every bend lies a world positively overflowing with both. But sometimes we can all use a night in, removed from the endless spiral of chaos and absolute nonsense that waits outside our doors. And for those nights, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get your favorite drinks delivered to your door in under 60 minutes. All from the comfort of your couch. Because society is great, but it doesn't have your couch. And it's windy out. And you forgot your jacket. And oh my God, would you look at the line at that place? Are you serious? I... (sighs) So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. You're listening to Hashtag No Filter with Zach Peter. That's me, your naturally platinum blonde pop culture connoisseur. I'm the reality TV junkie, self-improvement addict, and host with only the hottest tea spilled fresh weekly. For more hot takes, go and give me a follow at Just Plain Zach. I always keep it funny and I always keep it cute. And if you're like me and you want to stay up to date with the latest reality tea, go and give us a follow at No Filter with Zach on the Instagram. Or you can always join our private Facebook group. The link is in the description below. I hope right now you are sipping on some fizzy housewives inspired wine for yourself packing a punch at 13% alcohol by volume but less than a gram of sugar it is my no filter wine I like to call it my housewives watching wine because it's what I'm sipping while I'm watching real housewives with all of you all week long head over to nofilterwine.com must be 21 or older to order and please sip responsibly I have to say that legally but I do want you to get Liddy City this summer so go to nofilterwine.com and enjoy this weekend all right, I'm excited because today today we're going to be doing a lot of schmoozing. I have a very special guest on um, that is very easy on the eyes, but also very smart at the same time. And I know you guys are going to love him. Like I said, we're going to be doing lots of schmoozing. Please welcome the founder of Feruzin Law, Mr. Daniel Feruzin. Zach, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. How you doing? Not too bad. It's Friday. It is Friday. Well, we're taping this on Friday. It comes out on a Wednesday. So when people are listening to this, it's going to be like a hump day mid slump. So we're going to help them over the hump to get to Friday. Sounds good. So first, why don't we start? We're going to dive into a lot of the Girardi stuff. um, But I want to start with kind of getting a little background on you. So you do practice law, but what is your area of expertise? I do boutique personal injury and employment. That's a really fancy way of saying I take on very few cases involving child abuse, wrongful death, harassment, sexual harassment, etc. And I work on a small workload. So anything that involves usually a larger entity screwing over a smaller entity, that's when I get involved. So is it fair to say that it's similar to like what Tom Girardi was kind of doing because he would kind of take on these big giants and fight for the little guys, even though, I mean, it seems like he was fighting for some pretty, some pretty big clients. Well, I, I don't think there's any attorney who's going to jump into the same box as Tom Girardi at this point, (laughs) but, but yes, you could say that he was a personal injury attorney as well, uh, had a very large law firm and he was also doing catastrophic injury, child abuse, all that type of stuff. So I feel like uh, personal injury lawyers are often referred to as ambulance chasers. 
are you like I obviously would not put you in that same category, but is it kind of annoying to be lumped in with a lot of these like Twitter attorneys that are really just out to chase a quick buck? Yeah, that's why I say boutique, you know, different lawyers have a different way of doing things. I've worked for lawyers who have a very large volume based practice and they hire third parties to advertise to people, bring the cases in and then they don't do a good job with the cases. In fact, I think they spend more money on the advertising than they actually spend on the cases themselves. It's kind of nuts. I worked for a lawyer who did that. I lasted about nine months <laughs> and then I got out of there and I, I went back to my own law firm. So there's different ways to do it. Just like not all architects are the same, not all doctors are the same, not all engineers or podcast hosts are the same. Not all lawyers are gonna be the same either. And I do my best not to fall into that category of ambulance chaser, of course. No, I like to refer to myself in in terms of podcasters as, um, you know, I I always say I don't spill low budget tea. Low budget Mm. is the term we like to use for some of the ambulance chasers. Um, So I would say you're not a low budget lawyer. Thank you. Um, So now you were the one who gave the final interview with Tom Girardi on your podcast, Schmoozin with Feruzin. What was your level of awareness of Tom Girardi prior to all of this embezzlement scandal breaking? I mean, Tom had a big name in the community, and that's why I went ahead and you know used him as the first episode of my podcast. I was launching this podcast. You know, there's a lot of podcasts out there. I wanted to stand out one way or another, and someone introduced me to Tom Girardi. That's a huge name. The law firm that he used to have was. It's called Girardi and Keese. Clearly, it's not there anymore. Uh, but everyone knew about that law firm. In fact, I think he graduated from my law school. So I thought to myself, geez, what a perfect person to, what a great opportunity to have the first episode of my podcast. I had no idea that this type of stuff was going on in the background. Yeah. And when it broke, I was actually somewhat shocked. Just granted my interactions with him. I didn't expect all these things to come out or be true. Well, it broke within weeks of your interview coming out. Like, I think a couple weeks after your interview came out is when Erica filed for divorce, which opened up the floodgates for all these people to come out with lawsuits and all the allegations came forth. What was his reputation? Because I was not familiar with Tom Girardi other than being the husband to Erica Jane, who was a housewife on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So I feel like most people in my world didn't really know who Tom was other than the old man that Erica married because she's seemingly a gold digger, you know? It's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. As I began to speak to people after the information came out, I realized some people were aware of this stuff. Some people did know, you know, I spoke to my mentor and my mentor had some things to tell me. I was like, whoa, really? I didn't know any of this stuff. What were they aware of? What stuff? Uh, you know, improprieties in terms of ripping off clients, ripping off people who send them cases, ripping off, basically ripping people off one way or another. I didn't know this stuff at the time. Uh, I was kind of starstruck by the name and all that stuff. But yes, some people were aware of it. There have been, as I understand, the State Bar of California had pre-existing complaints against the guy, but they didn't go anywhere. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the State Bar of California actually came out and admitted that it made mistakes insofar as Girardi was concerned. I believe there were like almost 50 complaints filed against him over the course of his career, which I mean, to me, shouldn't be a standard. No, (laughs) I don't think it is the standard. I think it was a mistake. And unfortunately, you know, look, so he came on my podcast and got to say a bunch of stuff that probably isn't true. Okay. What's really bad is the clients that got hurt. What's really bad is, and there's a, there's a documentary on this and it shows these people who have burns all over their bodies and they never saw a dollar from this guy. Um, It's, it's heavy. 
It's heavy stuff. It's not, oh, you just had a business deal that went bad. This is personal injury, catastrophic injury, wrongful death. And to not pay people seemingly because you're trying to fund something else, maybe a lifestyle, whatever it might be, people who went through such horrendous circumstances, it's a real breach of your duty, not just as an attorney, but as a human being. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to like rip off other attorneys or to work in entertainment law, you know, and and to cheat some big businesses out of a, you know, a few extra bucks for your high profile client. Like, that's one thing. But you're taking advantage of vulnerable people um, that to me was just the most, you know, disgusting of it all. Would you have guessed that he was in mental decline because that came a few months after was that he had to be placed in an old folks home or an assisted care facility because he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. I believe that came like January of the following year and your interview was in October. So it was literally just a few months after. I, you know, I've had this question asked me before. Here's, here's how I'd answer it. Were there signs and indications of him going up there in the age. Yes, and I'll tell you what they were. The first thing I noticed is he seemed frail. The jacket that he put on was way too big for him. And it looked like walking was not the easiest thing in the world. During the actual interview process, sometimes I got the feeling he didn't quite understand the question I asked. But to be fair, that can come from a bunch of different reasons. Now, do I take from that and take it all the way to, oh, his some kind of a senile issue is what caused him to rip people off? No, I don't go that far. No. Um, you, you have to truly be out of your mind to not realize that withholding funds from a client is a problem. They drill that into us in terms of like the state bar of California. There's two things that get the state bar involved. When clients complain that an attorney hasn't communicated with me for a year, that tends to lead to all sorts of issues. But the number one thing that the state bar read alert, that's supposed to cause alarms at the state bar clearly didn't always work out. But the number one thing is called commingling of funds. In other words, you're my client, I'm your attorney, and I commingle our funds. My law firm, I have a, a bank account exclusively for my client's money. It's a trust account. It's not my money. The money that goes into that trust account is my client's funds. I am only allowed to take my fees and costs out of there. I can't take that money and then use it to pay bills and this and that. I can just take my fee. I can use my fee to pay bills, but I can't commingle your money with mine. That is disbarment 101. That's like lawyer ethics 101. So to, to, to suggest that this guy didn't realize what he was doing, mm, mm, I think, unfortunately, he knew. Yeah, I mean, the allegations go back decades. Like, it, it's not even, I mean, the mental decline, I would say, you know, his wife has come forth and, or his ex-wife has come forth and said that it happened within the past, like, over the past three, possibly five years is when he started to really show decline, specifically after a car accident where he had um, uh, some traumatic brain injuries. But the allegations go back decades that it just, to me, it seemed like this was the scheme that he had kind of kept going for a really long time. And it was only recently that it sort of caught up to him. What, you know, she says that when he would talk to people, he was kind of like on loop and he would kind of tell some of the same stories over and over. And it kind of just felt like he was pulling from an old catalog of memories and it wasn't really a lot of new information that he was giving. Did you get that same impression when you interviewed him? Yes, actually. Um, I did get the sense that some of the stuff that he was saying to me was regurgitated. 
some of the stuff that he was saying to me was, you know, comes from something he had previously said and maybe it worked with the crowd. So he chose to use it again. Uh, that's fine. I do that. I think everyone does that. Yeah. I don't know if that rises to the level of saying, Hey, uh, I'm sorry, you got burns over 90% of your body, but we're not going to give you your money. So typically, how does it work? Because my understanding of it, when you uh, settle a case for a client, that money then comes into the law firm and it's supposed to be put into a client trust account. Now we know that he was dipping into those client trust accounts and that there were lawyers that were signing money out on his behalf to make jewelry purchases or just personal expenses that he was, you know, writing off essentially. The argument's been made that there is a fee that's entitled to the attorney and that, you know, part of these purchases could have been part of that fee. However, my understanding is the improper transfer was because the money was coming directly from the client trust account. So what is the process of when a lawyer settles a case for a client and the settlement comes in? How do they collect their fee? And then how does the trust account work? And how does the client collect their money that they're entitled to? As Here's the way it typically works is I sue a defendant. We come to a settlement or a verdict. They now have to pay me. The defendant will send a check the check will have my law firm's name as well as my client's name on it, okay. implying that that money is both of ours. And then I go in my, my bank and I submit it to the IOLTA account, the client trust account. Once it's in that trust account, that is a special account. It's an account that's actually monitored by the State Bar of California. I had to give that account information to the State Bar and confirm to them that that's my client trust account. So they're aware of it. They know it exists. Now, if I had some expenditure, my expenditures have nothing to do with my client's trust account. My expenditures come out from my law firm's operating account. So if I had to pay for X or Y or Z, I, I don't think about the trust account. Trust account, when it's time to get paid, if I settled the case, we're closing out a case. And let's say I settled a case, let's just use a round number for $100,000. And I'm entitled to $40,000 of that. So I will transfer $40,000 out of my trust account into my operating account. And I'll very much, and we're very... I would say you have to be pretty, uh, not precautious, but you have to go through this process meticulously. So when I transfer the money, there's a record. I keep a record of all of this stuff. In addition to that, there's notes in the bank accounts. And then my bookkeeper goes over all this stuff as well and confirms with me, hey, was this the settlement for X? Was this a settlement for Y? You, didn't, you forgot to include a note on the bank thing here. What was this? Let's just make sure we have that all settled out. This stuff needs to be done uh, quite, how do I put it? You don't want to dot your I's and cross your T's. You do not want to start paying people directly out of the trust account. Um, that does not sound correct to me. It sounds like commingling. I mean, why not just move it into your operating account and, and take it as your fee and then pay from there? Why not just do that? What's, what is it that was going on that prevented it from doing that? Probably the fact that the money wasn't his in the first place, I would assume. But I would never do something like that. I think that's outright commingling of funds. And that's something that any lawyer who's worth their salt should know. So his wife, Erica, is the one or ex-wife, Erica, is the one that's been the subject of a lot of heat lately. But my personal take is that the focus should be more on the lawyers at the actual law firm, Girardi Keese. What's your take? So how culpable are they? Because they're all claiming that they didn't know anything that Tom was doing you obviously run your own firm. How realistic is it that these other people that were colleagues and associates of Tom at Girardi Keys had absolutely no clue of what was going on? It's a good question. And I think it's one that revolves around 
you know, who are we talking about? Are we talking about lawyers at his law firm? Or are we talking about third parties to the situation? So, for example, his wife. Um, when you work at a law firm and you're an attorney, you're under the umbrella of that law firm. So if that law firm is doing things that are wrong, if it's participating in impropriety and things of that nature, that may fall on you if you're part of that firm and you know what's going on and you didn't report it. So the California State Bar might come and say, hey, look, all these partners of this law firm, you knew what was happening and you didn't report it. Because at the end of the day, if someone is, a, is my client, if someone is a client at my law firm, I have a duty to them. I have duty to protect them, not do things that hurt them, to keep them informed, to communicate with them. So if I find out that the partner in my law firm is, is misappropriating their funds, I have a duty to notify my client. I have a duty to stop that from happening. I arguably have a duty to report it to the state bar. So insofar as other you know, attorneys are concerned, people who have been licensed by the state bar, the net of who's culpable for this might be wider. Whereas when you're dealing with someone like his wife, I mean, you'd have to start looking at things like, okay, was she some kind of an accessory to a fraudulent transfer? Was she somehow involved in fraudulent transfers? It's possible. Uh, that, that kind of starts to skirt into the world of criminal activity. It's not an area of law that I'm familiar with. It's not what I do. But I think in so far, at least the, the professionals who are involved, the lawyers, the accountants and things like that, arguably they might fall under the net of the state bar in terms of looking into this stuff. Um, it, as I understand, it, it was another lawyer who called out Tom at the end of the day. The lawsuit that was filed against Tom in court, I think was by another lawyer who said, hey, you never paid me either. So technically, there's supposed to be a pressure on us lawyers to report this kind of behavior. So is it fair to assume, you know, layman like myself, if these lawyers worked there for a very long time and they weren't reporting these things and these allegations have gone on for many years, it's fair to assume that they likely were also participating in some of these improper practices as well. Like, I just don't think Tom Girardi could have been the only person to have been engaging. With. Okay, here's a perfect example. Recently, there was a... Um, a pair of diamond earrings that came into question, they were able to link this purchase of the diamond earrings that Tom gave to his wife for $750,000. They were able to link that directly to a client trust account where wow. the purchase was made from that account. However, there was more than one attorney that had to sign off on the release of those funds from that account. I assume that was co-counsel on the case who helped Tom because he wasn't personally overseeing all of these cases. I mean, it's already keys. There are multiple lawyers that worked there. Um, so that was one of, you know, the few cases that they've come, they're still digging through all the books, but that was one of the few cases where they've actually been able to, to link a personal purchase directly to a client trust account. But these other lawyers had to have, they were working with Tom on these cases. They're all pleading the fifth and they're all saying, I didn't know anything. I'm not talking. Are they just as, I mean, is it possible to hold them criminally accountable for these, some of these well, what I would say first and foremost is much of what I'm talking about is not so much criminal accountability as it is ethics violations under the state bar. Got it. Um, but certainly, look, if you can show, I think insofar as the state bar's ethical investigations are concerned, that's going to be the lowest bar. That's going to be the lowest standard for finding someone to be culpable. Now, what happens if, if you violate a state bar ethics 
you know, if, if you're found to be in violation of ethics in front of a state bar commission, you lose your license. You don't go to jail. You yeah. lose your license. If the DA decides to get involved, that could change. Then you could be looking at criminal, you know, criminal stuff. Um, if other lawyers are signing off on these types of things, they better have a damn good reason why they signed off on it. They, they better really have their I's dotted and T's crossed in terms of their story, because yeah. at the very least, I would imagine they're looking at culpability under the state bar at the least. Is it common to run a law from the way that Tom did not as an actual like firm, but more as a sole proprietorship? Uh, in California, we do a lot of professional corporations. I'm not especially familiar with, you know, like the corporate laws. Um, if he did something like that, I, I don't know how common it is. Most people in California, most lawyers in California have what's called an APC, a professional corporation. It's a basic corporation. It's an S corp that happens to be a legal corporation, which comes with a couple of things that change. One of the things that changes when you have, for example, an APC, and it might actually touch upon the conversation is if you have a corporation and someone sues your corporation, the corporation is liable. If you have a law firm and someone sues your law firm, the founder of the law firm is personally liable for the debts and assets of the liability of the law firm as well. So, you know, that's something that you get specifically with legal corporations. I can't tell you whether or not sole proprietorship is, is normal, abnormal. I will say the vast majority of law firms today are just professional corporations. How common is it to not have insurance? Because we know that he didn't have insurance to protect himself or the law firm either. You do not need, as far as I know, to have insurance, but you need to disclose the fact that you don't have insurance to your clients. So long as you disclose to them that you don't have insurance, you're allowed to not have insurance. It's not a requirement by the state bar. Now, any attorney worth their salt is going to have insurance. I have insurance. I would recommend any attorney have insurance. I get it. Someone started being a lawyer a year ago and you can't afford it. Fine. But as for the rest of us, yeah, you got to have that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I would feel concerned if, if a law firm did it. If I was working with a law firm that didn't have insurance. I, I'd ask why, you know, why would you do that? Why would you take that risk? Why not just pay X amount a year and have that covered? Well, I think the argument could be made because isn't the insurance company also responsible for making reports to the California state bar if there's so if you end up getting sued by a client or there are accusations of not paying clients or any of the debts at the law firm isn't the insurance company responsible for reporting that i understand what you're saying i think it's a little bit different but i, I get where you're coming from and it's a good point i don't know if the insurance company is required to report anything to the state bar however i do know that I must report things to my insurance company if I see any problems coming. So you have to give the insurance company notice of a potential claim or notice of an actual claim. And it may be such that by not having insurance, he was able to avoid that particular duty. I don't have insurance. I don't need to report to anyone that I have a potential claim coming up. There's less of a paper trail. It makes sense. Do you think that the system that's currently in place here in California um, at, with the bar enables this type of behavior? Or do you think that it's more of just savvy attorneys that know how to work the system? Uh, I'd say more of the former, unfortunately. So and, and there's another aspect to this, which is like we started this conversation earlier, and I appreciate you, you bringing up the difference between sort of volume based litigator, a billboard attorney versus someone who does more boutique work and specializes, et cetera. Um, 
I think part of the, the, the puzzle there is there are just lawyers who look at this as a craft and there are lawyers who look at it as a business. And the lawyers who look at it as business are going to be the ones who are going to be more, let's say, uh, skirting the lines or pushing the boundaries in order to make a profit because they're looking at it from that basis. They're looking at it from the cost benefit basis financially. So I think part of that puzzle is there are just lawyers out there who are businessmen. And, you know, I, I don't mean to speak poorly of any of my colleagues, but I do find that to water down and lower the generalized quality of the law in the state of California. Beyond that, it looks like the state bar was letting him slide. And that is truly unfortunate. My nonprofit, we did an event, it was called Deconstructing Girardi. It's a bar association, which is effectively a legal network for lawyers. And we had a bunch of people on, one of them worked for the state bar. And the way, if I remember correctly, the way she put it was claims would be brought to the state bar and they would just get passed from one investigator to another investigator to another investigator until it just was so old and nothing came of it. Now, I have a feeling there's a lawyer out there who's thinking to himself, well, geez, when the state bar investigated me, I was disbarred in a year. Why didn't Tom get disbarred? And that's a question I can't answer. You can look into, you know, I could get into conspiracy at that point. Yeah. And there are conversations about Tom Girardi whining and dining the state bar, which may or may not have caused the state bar to be neglectful of the claims that came in for him. I don't know that for certain. I'm not going to make that allegation. It's certainly something to think about when you wonder when there is so much of a history of this, why he was never caught before. And I think the state bar kind of came out and said, hey, we made a mistake here. This is our mistake. What, what I'm curious to see is what they do going forward. Is it more of the same? You know, are these things just going to keep on happening? Or is there actually going to be serious recourse for an attorney who does this kind of stuff? Again, this all, as far as I know, came to light, not because of the state bar, but because of another lawyer uh, filing a lawsuit against Tom. Well, a lawyer and clients. There were former clients that were filing lawsuits against him. I think the the Rui Gomez family, the the burn victim, he's the one that they really came after Tom pretty hard and got a judge to um, make a judgment in their favor in terms of funds that hadn't been paid prior um, that you know, really kind of exposed that there were clients that weren't getting all of their um, all of their money. I believe even the Aaron Brockovich case, which he's most notable for, there was a, a Salon article that recently started to resurface about how there were clients in that case that were claiming that they didn't get all of their funds. But also, we have to remember that just because a client makes an accusation, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're entitled to something. Because after this started breaking and after I started covering the embezzlement scandal, there were a lot of people that came forth they were like, oh, Girardi Keese represented one of my cases back in the mm. day, and I don't believe I got all of my money. And you not believing you got all of your money doesn't necessarily, like an accusation doesn't necessarily mean that there was an actual like crime committed. You know, anybody can really make a an accusation. That's a smart point. And you're right. Anyone can make an accusation. Doesn't mean it's worth a damn. Um, I think with someone like Tom, it seems like where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. I can't tell you who said this to me. But I can give you the quote, which is Tom's been ripping people off for decades. That is something after this whole thing came down and I started speaking with people, someone who I, I, I value their opinion. I, I think highly of this person said that to me. And I was like, geez, I had no idea about this stuff. And um, it's weird. It's weird because I was just sitting across from him, you know, a couple months prior to that conversation. And I, I thought the guy was an interesting person. He uses mannerisms and lingo 
that no one ever, no one else ever says. He kept saying things in the in the podcast like blah blah blah. Forget about it, baby. I was like, what am I, Dick Tracy? I've I've, I've never met like a, a lawyer who talks like this. Um, and and you know that might have been part of the problem. You know what 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 person who cons people isn't charming. You kind of have to be right. So, you know, look, I don't know all the ins and outs. I only know what I've heard, and it sounds like this is not the first rodeo for Tom. But again, I'd say where there's smoke, there's probably fire on this one. Right. Um, what's your what was your impression of him or like what was your reaction to all of the scandal starting to break and all these accusations starting to come forth? I don't quite remember. I think I was so busy. <laughs> oh, it's so busy. I was like, oh, well, this is happening. Um, I don't remember what my reaction was. I mean, part of me, I was a little embarrassed. I was like, geez, I'm on there. And look, part of, and I'm sure you understand and appreciate this, is part of hosting someone on your podcast, part of taking someone's time to come on your podcast, you're usually going to give them flattery. You're usually going to be nice to them. You're not going to have someone come on your podcast and start machine gunning them with like horrendous stuff. So yeah, part of my podcast, I did say, hey, this is one of the most informative things I've ever heard. And, and to be fair, the information that he was providing wasn't all terrible. Some of it was good advice for a lawyer to listen to. But when you look back on that. Was after, he giving you advice to pay for earrings out of client trust accounts? He didn't quite say that. Much. Oh. He didn't go that far. Um, yeah. Imagine if I started. Wow. Imagine if at that. What's crazy to me, Zach, is why did he go on my podcast when this stuff was happening? Do you, you know what think, I mean? Do you think that it was delusion or do you think that it was because I mean, a lot of the times when you have a con artist, I'm not saying that Tom, I mean, I think it's fair to say Tom was a bit of a con artist, but um, when you have people that are able to work the system to their benefit and they get, they get away with it for so long, there is a level of delusion to think, or I don't know if it's arrogance or delusion to believe that they're never going to get caught. So they can go on podcasts and they can give interviews and they can continue to uh, project this seemingly successful facade. I mean, is it fair to say that that's why he went on the podcast to continue to stroke his ego and think that he was just going to get away with this forever. It's very possible. I mean, the podcast was recorded in 2020 where to be fair, there wasn't a lot going on in terms of personal interactions. And let's say if you do want your ego stroked and you're in a situation where like when I went to his law firm, his law firm was mostly empty. It was actually kind of odd. I saw like one lawyer in there kind of had an air of like unhappiness or something, something. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know. I think you're probably hitting something, some nail on the head, which is when he's been doing it for so long and getting away with it for so long, uh, inevitably your consciousness and subconsciousness starts to think, well, this is okay. I don't have to be alarmed by this. This is not going to be a problem. And I'll tell you, it was a problem. Um, my podcast is hyperlinked in the filings in federal court. And when I say hyperlink, I don't just mean a link to the podcast. I mean, timestamped links. So at 22 minutes and 25 seconds, Mr. Girardi says X, Y, Z. At 34 minutes and X, Y, Z seconds, Mr. Girardi says this, that, and the other thing. Um, it was damning evidence. Yeah. And he provided it three months, four months before the lawsuit came to fruition. It's kind of crazy to me. No, yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, 
I think it, there was probably either a level of arrogance or maybe he really was kind of in mental decline. And I mean, well, now we, we've seen the condition he's in recently and we've seen, you know, TMZ footage of him. And it's or I think it was page six that released the footage of him at the um, assisted living center. And he's just he doesn't seem to be all there. I'm pretty sure, you know, if he was already in cognitive decline, the scandal and the stress and the divorce obviously didn't help any of that. <laughs> All right, hold up. Wait a minute. We're going to take a very quick break because I need to let you know what today is. Do you know what today is? It's not my birthday. Sorry. But today is Amazon Prime Day, July 12th and July 13th. It's a two-day sale with so many hot deals on Amazon right now. And I have you fully stocked with my Amazon storefront. I've got a lot of good Bravo Lab and Zach Peter tried and true goodies up in my Amazon storefront, which is Amazon.com slash shop slash Zach Peter. That's Amazon.com slash shop slash Zach Peter. Lots of really good deals that are going off. Today is the last day, July 13th, Wednesday, July 13th for Amazon Prime Day. You guys, these deals are hot. I have multiple collections up in my Amazon storefront. We have Bravo Book Club if you want to stock up on any Bravo books. We've got Bravo Beauty, which are tried and true beauty products used by Bravo Labs and myself that I have personally tried and endorsed for you. I have some fun watch parties. We got some good like some good furniture collections. We got some housewives home office items all up in my Amazon storefront. I mean, look at this right now. The silk pillowcases. I love me some silk pillowcases because it makes sure it, it keeps my hair from drying out and from breaking. If you deal with hair breakage, Dorinda Medley loves a good silk pillowcase. That's on sale. Amazon Prime deal. Hello, 30% off the silk pillowcases. Let's get it, get it, get it. Ooh, Kyle Richards' favorite SPF is on sale right now from V-Derm, lightweight daily UV defense. Yes, we love some good SPF this summer. That's on sale for 50% off today. Amazon Prime Day. Guys, 50% off SPF. This is some good shit. It's only 20 bucks right now. I need to stop. Oh, we got Olaplex on sale right now. Margaret Joseph from Real Houses in New Jersey. She loves her some Olaplex, and so do I. Every time I have a hair wash day, I always guzzle out the Olaplex and just like, you know, douse my hair in it. And that way it keeps the blonde bonds strong. It is a hair perfecter and it is on sale right now. Wow, six bucks off. Prime Day deal. I'm here. I need to stock it. Olaplex is expensive. Drop down, expensive. I'm going to stock up on Olaplex right now. All right, guys. Well, there you go. I also have like my bar cart that I have here when I do like a housewives watching housewives watching party. Um, my bar collection. All of those are now up in the Amazon storefront. Amazon.com slash shop slash Zach Peter. Don't miss out on these hot deals. I love me some Amazon Prime. Like that shit comes like within a day. There's a one day delivery. I mean, who needs to wait until next week anymore? What is this Etsy? We don't do Etsy anymore. We do Amazon Prime, baby. Amazon Prime. Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash Zach Peter. That's Z-A-C-K-P-E-T-E-R. There is no C-H and there is no S at the end. So don't be playing with me. Z-A-C-K-P-E-T-E-R. Amazon.com slash shop slash Zach Peter. Go today before those deals run out. Oh, I'm curious to know what you think about the Amber Heard Johnny Depp defamation case. A lot actually quite a bit yeah um generally or is there anything in particular let's start, a lot let's start general what what was your initial reaction to the i guess amount of attention and media attention that this case got my initial sense was this is a, a circus 
<laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, this is not what the practice of law usually looks like, sounds like. And, you know, at this point with the situation with Girardi and, and various other things, you worry that people are going to look at courts as a bit of a circus. And maybe there's other things that might make people nowadays think that the courts are a bit of a circus. And you lose that sense of trust in the institutions. Um, and it was a weird trial. It was a really weird trial. Um, you know, Johnny Depp is cracking jokes. Amber is talking directly to the jury. Uh, the attorney who's cross-examining these people are getting a little hostile uh, and aggressive and argumentative. And from what I could tell, the trial judge just let it go. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was one witness on the stage, or what he was calling, he was zooming in from his cell phone in his car and he like took a hit of the vape. And I was like, <laughs> what are we watching? Like, what? Wow. <laughs> it was wild. Yeah, that is, um, look, the trial judge is the commander of her court. You know, it's, it's, it's up to her how she wants to let it go. Some trial judges will give you more leniency. Some will give you less leniency. I find typically just from my personal experience, they're pretty fair. They might not get every single call right, but they're typically pretty fair. In this case, I was just shocked at some of the antics and stuff. I'll give you one of the examples. Um, I think when Ms. Vasquez was cross-examining uh, Ms. Hurd, it got a little argumentative between the two of them. And at that point, and that, that went viral, just as an aside, that went viral where she was doing a hard cross-examination and people said, oh, look at Ms. Vasquez, you know, slamming Ms. Hurd and putting her down and putting in her place. Maybe, depending on the circumstances, you can have a situation where the jury doesn't like the fact that the attorney is being so aggressive. Right. Or you can have a situation where the attorney loves the fact that the, excuse me, the jury loves the fact that the attorney is being aggressive. So, you know, you get mixed results, but in this particular case, we saw signs of aggression. We saw signs of argumentation. The judge seemed to let it go. And then it went viral on top of all of that. And then when it goes viral, who's watching that stuff? Yeah. The jury. The jury. You, you, the, the judge will instruct the jury not to look at this stuff online. That's fantastic. You can also tell kids not to eat the cake on the table. They're going to eat right. the cake on the table. Uh, it, it's, it's an inevitable thing that's going to happen. And that's kind of what bothers me about it. It's the circus aspect of it. And what I don't want people to think, because I don't want people to think that all these lawsuits are circuses. Mine are far from a circus. Right. I also don't want people to think that just because this woman got sued for defamation, that anyone who, and look, I'm making no comment on whether or not she was actually victimized by Johnny Depp. It sure sounds like that was a huge mess between two uh, unsavory and toxic people, frankly. But I also don't want women who are often my clients in sexual harassment and workplace abuse cases to think, oh, now I can't say anything. So I'm going to get sued for defamation. That's not necessarily true. And that particular case had all sorts of stuff going on. The allegations that were made against Johnny Depp were not made in a lawsuit. They were made in an article that I think the ACLU actually ghost wrote uh, right. in the Washington Post. Um, and that gets weird, too, because apparently Amber Heard was paying the ACLU, but didn't pay the ACLU. And then it got complicated. She promised to pay the ACLU and didn't work out. And somehow that came up during cross-examination. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I also say to, to last point I'll make, um, didn't seem like Amber Heard or her lawyers were really on top of things, just from what I saw. I mean, that was an understatement. Um, 
<laughs> they were a bit of a shit show, if I'm being honest. Like her, her. I mean, talk about aggressive attorney Elaine, the the female attorney. She was very aggressive and like wouldn't even get Amber Heard's name correct in cer- at, at certain times during the trial. It was wild. Um, now you made a point saying that you think that this may hinder or prevent women from coming forth with their own allegations. I feel like the public or at least the majority of the public kind of felt the opposite, that they felt like she was making false accusations or at least exaggerating these accusations, um, you know, in a way to amplify her own reputation. That was the argument that was made, right? That she did this op-ed in the Washington Post, worked with the ACLU, they wrote it on her behalf. They kind of worked as the liaison to get the article out and they made sure that the coordination of it um, aligned with the release of her latest film, Aquaman. And it was more of a PR stunt and she was trying to bolster her reputation by releasing this article at that specific time because then it would kind of put her in a new category with the um, the attention the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement were getting at that time. Do you really think that it's going to prevent women from coming forth? Or do you think, if anything, it's kind of allowed us to really take to weight the allegations that are being made and and making us really look at the allegations a lot more rather than just blanket believing any statement that comes forth? Well, look, I'll answer that question this way. The, The majority of my sexual harassment clients are women. The majority of my employment clients are women. I've heard enough horrendous story from women, young, old, everything in between about what goes on in certain workplaces mm. to appreciate that abuse and all sorts of horrible things that shouldn't happen to people do get directed towards women. And, you know, there's a misogyny there. There's a chauvinism there. I appreciate all that being there. Simultaneously, you have to check every case for its merits. You have to run every case based on did the thing actually happen or did it not happen? And I think in Ms. Hurd's particular case, she came off as very uh, unbelievable. She did not come off as genuine. She did not come off as straightforward. She would skirt some of the questions that were asked to her and Ms. Vasquez called her out on it. That's particularly when they were talking about whether or not she paid the ACLU for that article. And she said she pledged, but she didn't say that she paid. And, you know, stuff like that. I thought the lawyers were the ones who do that kind of stuff, right? right? When the witness on the stand is the one doing that kind of a thing, Oh, does not set well with a jury. And I think insofar as, look, if someone was going to come, the problem is this. It's not like Amber Heard filed a lawsuit. She responded to a lawsuit. Right. So now she made the allegations in the, in the, in the article, but insofar as the, the lawsuit was concerned, it's not like she dragged Johnny Depp to court and then was a poor witness. Johnny Depp, Depp dragged her to court and thereon she was, was a poor witness. So you, I think you've got to take that into consideration. So do I think it's good that someone who came off as unbelievable was marked as such by the jury? Yes, of course. If you're not going to present in a way that is believable, there's consequences to that, unfortunately, right. for the person. I'm sure there are some people out there who are being completely honest, but because of whatever quirk they have, come off as dishonest. And, and I'm sympathetic towards that. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case here. I doubt that's the case here. However, there's also a contra to this, another side to this. Whereas Amber Heard came off as someone who's difficult to believe, Johnny Depp is not only a good actor, 
he's very personable. He, he has a charm to him. He's a quirkiness that's funny with that voice. I'm not going to lie. Even I was charmed by, as he slowly began to learn what hearsay was, I found that funny. I found that cute. So whereas Amber Heard may have come off as unbelievable, whether true or otherwise, you know, Johnny Depp is coming off, in my opinion, and you hear the, the courtroom laughing, uh, and you see these videos going viral, Johnny Depp is coming off as charming, believable, charismatic. And, you know, again, I don't know if those things go to the weight of the actual allegations. So you got to be careful. Uh, the personalities, the media, and the circumstances surrounding the trial can really color the trial for better or for worse. And I think we also forget that the case itself and the trial itself were defamation. It wasn't about the allegations themselves. It was about whether what she wrote in this op-ed in the new in the Washington Post was true or it was a fabrication. And so, you know, I know people like to equate it to actual victims of domestic or sexual violence, but this was a case of defamation, whether or not she was telling the truth when she made those accusations. And, you know, the jury found that she, they did not believe her to be telling the truth. And they ended up, I was surprised that they awarded him all three counts of defamation. I thought if anything, he had the strongest case against the tweet that she had shared the article in. Um, but the fact that they awarded him, you know, everything that he was asking for to me was shocking. But I guess, you know, we're not the jurors and we're not in that position where we're taking in all of this information. It was a lot of information to take in. That was a very long trial. You make a good point. We're not the jurors. Everyone and their mother had an opinion yeah. once the, the verdict came out. And unfortunately, and everyone's opinions were very, they're very confident in their, in their opinions as, as people on the Internet usually are. Uh, and none of these people sat through the trial. No. Not a single one. To, to sit and take weeks away from friends, family, and work and just plow through evidence and plow through testimony, that's not, not nothing. That's a something. Those people dedicated time, whether they realize a trial would be as long as it was, maybe, maybe not, but they dedicated time. So when people ask me, who do I believe? I always say, I defer to the jury. And they say, well, why would you defer to the jury? Well, because they're the ones who saw the evidence. Yeah. And here's the thing. I mean, for you, it's a bit different because you're an actual attorney. But for me, I would be no different if I were called to the trial and asked to sit on the jury and have to dissect all of that information. I would, you know, they're just regular individual people, just like any of us that were selected to sit on this jury after, you know, the jury selection. But so, you know, it's like I can't really... I remember I had one friend that was I was, you know, explaining the case to her as it was, you know, as I was following it and as I was reporting on it. And she was like, that's so crazy that that's our legal system, that a bunch of, you know, a collection of strangers can really just sit there and, and, <laughs> and judge what happens to people. Like, shouldn't this be, you know, the responsibility of a judge to decide? Um, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's the way our legal system is set up when you have a jury. Like, it really is just a, you know. We're all called to jury duty, you know. That's the We're point. Just people. A, yeah, that's the point of it. It's supposed to be a jury of your peers. And I, I think where this mindset of a jury of your peers came from, if you remember, the United States was kind of designed as the antithesis to monarchy. And back in you know the UK during monarchical reign, someone would just come and say, oh, well, we're taking away your property. Why? Well, the, the king said you did X, Y, and Z. But what's the proof? Doesn't matter. Get out of here. Um, when... 
the founders created the country and a lot of the ideas behind the country, whether or not they, they've withstand, withstood the test of time, the idea was to avoid that. It was to avoid tyranny. So by getting a bunch of randos and putting them in the jury, you and then allowing the lawyers to remove certain people from that jury till you have something that everyone agrees on, um, it, it does take away the sense that the jury might be bought. It does take away the sense that the jury might be working in someone's favor. Now, contra to that, like I said earlier, these are the same people who are probably seeing all the stuff on Instagram about the trial. So, you know, you, you get rid of a you get rid of an aspect of corruption and you you allow in something else from the back door. I think as it is in terms of having 12 random people, if you could think of a better way to do it than that, I'm all yours. Yeah, I agree. What are your thoughts on Kim Kardashian passing the baby bar and studying to become a lawyer here in California? She's not, not going. She's not going to law school. She's not going to Harvard. She's not getting yeah. a law degree. She's not doing it the Elwoods Woods way. She's kind of doing it this more, you know, unorthodox way of studying and interning and doing it on her own. Honestly, I, I don't think much about it. I, I remember I saw a photo of a celebrity who went to college and it went viral. And they're like, good for her. She went to college. Fantastic. Even though she's a millionaire. She Was it Lori, she... Lori Laughlin's daughter? Uh, no, no, no. This is this is legitimate, like legitimately went to college, I guess. Legitimately. I don't know. Yeah. But and I thought to myself, Jesus, when I was in law school, I sat next to two women, number one and number two of the class, literally. Number one in my class was to the left. Number, excuse me, number one in my class was to my left. And number two in the class was to my right. Um, and what number were you? Somewhere in the top 20%. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. After, after the top five, no one really keeps track. Um, but I said, goodness gracious, these women are coming. They're, they're, both had careers, by the way. Both were working, had families with multiple children. And they were coming in regardless. And we would, I went to night school with them. I worked during the day and we went to school at night. So six o'clock classes start, nine o'clock classes end. These women came from their work, left their families, their children, their husbands, and came and went to class from six to nine. And at nine o'clock, would go back to the library to discuss what they learned in the class. Okay. That impresses me. Yeah. That impresses me. A woman who can afford literally every tutor and all this stuff and has no actual pressure. And if it works out great, if it doesn't work out, what's the big deal? Eh, you know, look, all the power to her. I, I don't I don't deny anyone anything. Yeah. If she passes it, she passes it. Good for her. If she can make a dent in this world and do things and make things better for people. You know, for example, I'm very heavily I wouldn't say heavily, but I'm a big proponent of something called the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent. These guys go, you want to talk about people who are impressive. These guys go through all these criminal convictions and they find people who were not convicted based on good evidence. They find people who never committed the crimes, but the district attorney threw them in jail anyways. And they don't have Kim Kardashian money. They don't study by the pool. You know, they don't go, they don't go, you know, wearing Gucci and, and whatever it is, to the library, whatever. They're probably not paid very well, to be frank, but they're doing God's work. Yeah. That impresses me. That impresses me. Um, and I, I sometimes wish society would give those people more accolades. But look, if Kim Kardashian, for example, she seems to be somewhat involved in the world of convictions. If if ultimately she starts doing good in the world, if she uses a celebrity to get people out of jail who don't deserve to be there, then welcome aboard. Like, we're happy to have you at that point. Kim Kardashian aside, what do you think of just how here in California, we don't require people to actually go to law school and get a law degree in order to become an attorney? 
Well, that, that, it's a it's a controversial topic and it's a complicated topic because there's two things. What I think Kim Kardashian is trying to do and what exists now is you don't necessarily need to go to law school. You need to be under a lawyer's tutelage. And that lawyer needs to sign declarations to indicate that you did X, Y, and Z and earned your way. You have to take the baby bar and then you take the bar. Very few people do that. I, I, I In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the people who do that do it because they have a foot in the door, some kind of privilege that allows it. That's not a common thing. However, the state bar, for whatever reason, is watering down the requirements. And I got to be careful what I say here. I don't want to get too in trouble with the state bar. But- they are truly watering down what it means to be an attorney. And I'll explain to you how they're doing it. They started with taking the California bar, which is three days long, and taking it from three days and reducing it to two days. Subsequent to that, they lowered the passing score. And during 2020, they made the examination open book, open note. So people were doing, doing the bar exam from home on their laptop or desktop and actually, wait, excuse me, they didn't make it open book or open note. They allowed people to take the bar from home. To me, that's effectively saying, hey, everyone, you can cheat on the bar exam because there's no proctor here to watch you. If you tell a bunch of law students, hey, you're taking the bar from home, they're going to have notes. They're going to have notes everywhere. Of course, they're going to do that. It's a hard examination. These people are competitive. So not only do you have a lowering of the score, not only do you have a truncated examination, but you also have a situation where a lot of people probably cheated on the exam and the pass rates were very high as far as I understand. Uh, Beyond that, the state bar is trying to do things in terms of allowing non-lawyers to practice law. In other words, you don't actually have to be a lawyer. You, we don't even actually know exactly what it is you have to be or do yet, but you're allowed to practice law. Now, I've been involved in this. I've, I've heard what the state bar has to say. The state bar has a point. There's a lot of battered women out there who are victims of domestic violence who could use legal representation. They probably have no money. They're in battered woman syndrome, that type of a thing. And I'm sure men as well. But they're in that syndrome where they feel helpless and they probably don't think to themselves, oh, I can afford a lawyer. They probably can't. And the clinics that exist are probably underfunded. I think what the state bar is saying is, hey, if we just flood the market with lawyers, these types of situations will be accounted for. We'll have more lawyers available for victims of domestic violence, this, that, and the other thing. I like the idea. I think it's a bit of a pipe dream. I think if you open up the floodgates and just let everyone to practice law in the state of California without a license, you think the billboards are bad now? You can have a thousand more billboards, a thousand more businesses. Have you been injured in an auto accident? Those advertisements will be on the television 24-7. You think they're bad now when you go to an L.A. Laker game. Imagine if massive corporations like Amazon start getting involved in the auto accident business as if it's not already bad enough in the state of California. I I think a more reasoned approach where the state bar works with pro bono services, where the state bar works with legal aid clinics, which, by the way, have always been there. We've always said the legal aid clinics and these nonprofits who support people who are disenfranchised or don't have the money or have some kind of a minority status and they don't understand the country well and don't know what to do. Maybe they don't speak English well, whatever it is. These nonprofits have always existed. These legal aid organizations have always existed. I swear to God, five minutes ago, we were all talking about how they need more funding. (laughs) But rather than doing that, it looks like the state bar is just going to open the floodgates and say, hey, you want to practice law? Welcome aboard. Go for it. And and. Will there be more attorneys to handle some domestic issues? Of course, but this is something that needed more of a scalpel and they took a chainsaw and 
I worry what's going to happen to the quality of litigation in the state of California if literally anyone can just snap their finger and be an attorney. I mean, the biggest red flag to me is if the, you know, if the state bar wasn't able to regulate someone like Tom Girardi, who had several cases against him and allegations, you know, going back decades, how are like if I decide to become a lawyer like that? I mean, I know way less than somebody that's seasoned that would be able to go in and practice law. That to me just doesn't seem, you know, if we're already so backlogged because that's what the state bar is claiming, right? That there were so backlogged and there were so many cases and so many complaints against so many attorneys that they weren't able to keep up with it. I just feel like this doesn't help an already, you know, flawed system. Yes, it's a a smart point, Zach. In fact, I made that exact point to the state bar. I get into those conference calls. I I call up as I'm the president of the West Side Bar Association. So I try to try to get the the community going and this and that. And, you know, kind of got to lead by example. You have to be involved in those committee meetings. And I am. And I said exactly what you just said. If we can't regulate Girardi and we already have issues with attorneys, you're going to open the floodgates to a bunch more like businesses and potentially unscrupulous people. If anything, lawyers need more accountability, not less. And here's the strangest thing. The very ethics rules that we as lawyers have to undergo, and that involves going to law school. During law school, you have ethics classes. You have to pass a background examination. You have to pass an ethics examination. I think you even have to write like a personal statement about your ethics and this, that, and the other thing. And then you got to pass the bar and all these like steps to get to the place of being a lawyer, and we, we already have corruption, um, all those steps are set up by the state bar. People do these continuing educational credits. It's something that lawyers have to do. We have to keep going to seminars. The state bar set that all up for lawyers. Right. And if you said, why to the state bar did you set all that up? They say, well, we got to keep these people regulated. It's, it's a delicate job being a lawyer. We have to regulate them. But then that same exact state bar who set up those regulations and ethic concerns and, hey, you got to go to law school and do X, Y, and Z just creates this like backdoor loophole that says, ah, don't worry about that. You can practice. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Who knows? Right. Daniel Feruzin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're, you have your practice, Feruzin Law. You have your podcast, Schmoozin with Feruzin. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap? I appreciate you letting me come on. And I also appreciate that you do a long format podcast to get this amount of detail out. You need to have a long format. So I love it. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you. Where can people listen to your podcast? Schmoozing with Feruzin on YouTube. Schmoozing with Feruzin on YouTube. It's video. I, I think that's actually how we got connected. We have the same production guy, or I don't know if you still um, yes. work with Marco, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I've worked with Marco for years. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, there are going to be many more legal or celebrity pop culture legal cases to come, and hopefully, I get to have you back on to dissect it more because I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So did I, and it'd be my pleasure to come back. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to Hashtag No Filter with Zach Peter. You can give me a follow at Just Plain Zach or follow the podcast at No Filter with Zach. What do, what's your social handle? Or is there a social handle you want people to go and slide into your DMs at? Daniel Feruzan on YouTube, F-O-R-O-U-Z-A-N or Daniel Feruzan on Instagram, F-O-R-O-U-Z-A-N. <laughs> 
There you go. Daniel Feruzen. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Like I said, you can follow me at Just Plain Zach. Follow the show at No Filter with Zach. Subscribe to the YouTube channel because we have full episodes, full video episodes there in addition to the audio episodes that are available on all podcast platforms. If you haven't done so yet, go and order No Filter Wine at NoFilterWine.com. 13% alcohol by volume, but less than a gram of sugar. So you'll get Liddy City, but you won't have that gnarly wine headache because I want to make it conscious for you. All right, guys, enjoy your summer. Let me know what other burning legal questions or burning legal topics you'd like me to cover. And I will talk to you later. Bye.